This week on The Deadly Seven. We're hot on the trail of pride. He set up quite an operation in the small town of Pedestal with his henchmen, me, myself, and I. He's managed to convince the townsfolk that the world revolves around them, turning the once thriving town into a wasteland of self-centeredness, setting them all up for destruction. He may be on top now, but pride cometh before the fall. Good morning. Thank you so much for being a part of our God and Country service, and I do hope that you'll uh, go on over and enjoy the hot dogs and all the stuff and look at the cars afterwards. And we are so thankful for our veterans. We're thankful for those who are involved, our, our, our uh, police and firemen and those that, that protect us on a daily basis. We're thankful for all of you, and we're glad that you could be with us. Well, if you couldn't tell, we're starting a new sermon series today uh, called The Deadly Seven. And there are some things that have gone out of style. In fact, when I was coming in, one of our teenagers asked me, uh, he had been out looking at some of the cars. He said, Pastor, are you, are you older than all the cars out there on the lot? I said, most of them. <laughs> Not all of them, but most of them. But some words have gone out of style. I remember my grandmother used to call our sofa a Davenport. And she called her, 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 her purse a pocketbook and the vacuum was a sweeper. Some of you remember 8-track tapes or even cassette tapes or even, it seems like, CDs anymore. But they're all going out of style. And one of the things that, that may fit in that category of obsolete or irrelevant anymore seems to be the word sin. It, it seems that we have softened our view of sin. And people make mistakes these days. They have bad habits. They, they have an error in judgment or maybe a weakness or a shortcoming. We don't like to say it, but it's sin. Simple, wrong, impure, ugly sin. And sin is our biggest problem in our world today. And sin is the reason why Jesus came to earth. You'll remember when, when Mary was discovered that she was with child, the angel showed up at Joseph's door and told him, Joseph... Son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He will not overlook our sins. He does not make excuses for our sins. He does not convince us that we are in this cycle, doomed into this cycle of sin after sin after sin. No, the Bible says he will save us from our sins. He will rescue us. He will redeem us. He will make us new. He will start us uh, uh, over again. He will give us a second, third, fourth, thousandth chance. We used to sing a song around these parts. The song asked a question, and then it answered the question. You probably remember it. The song went like this. What can wash away my sins? I got the choir behind me. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yeah, wow, I like you guys back there. That's awesome. And it's true. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As important as, as visiting a counselor may be, simply going to a counselor will not resolve our 
our sin problem. Voting for either political party is not going to remedy your sin problem. Positive thinking doesn't do away with our sin problem. Sending money to a TV preacher, or even for that matter, putting money in our offering plate, doesn't buy you out of a sin problem. No, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And that's what this series is about. We're going to be not only talking about sin, but showing that Jesus is the remedy for all sin. So we'll look at these sins that historically Christians have, have looked to as the root, the cause, the, the, the beginning points, uh, the components of sin, labeled the seven deadly sins, pride, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth. We're going to look at these seven deadlies for the next uh, seven more weeks, six weeks after today. But today we're starting with that first one, the all-consuming one. Some think that it is a part of all of those seven deadly sins, and that is pride. Pride is first on the list. Pride may be the most pervasive of them all. It is consumed, as the video said, with me, myself, and I. I thought about on this Sunday, it's God and Country Sunday, uh, maybe just starting the series next week and, and having kind of a standalone sermon today where I talk about, you know, our freedom, our freedom that can be found in Christ, or talking about praying for America. Certainly we need to do that. But in the end, I decided to start today because it seems like, if you, if you know your Old Testament, probably the sin that, that brought ruin to Israel over and over and over again, Israel, the nation, was this sin of pride where they got their eyes off of God Almighty and on to, to other things. And so just as pride can consume a person, pride can certainly consume a nation. And you may say, now wait a minute, Pastor, this has gotten country service. We're proud to be Americans. There's nothing wrong with that. And you're right. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, in fact I, I'm very proud to be an American too. I, we have a beautiful country. We can be very, very thankful. We have much to be thankful for. Tony Dungy, the Super Bowl-winning football coach and wonderful Christian man, he tweeted this this week. He said, I am proud to be an American in the best sense of the word, but we have to keep that pride in perspective and understand that we are not perfect. Perfection comes in Jesus Christ, so I'm more proud to be a Christian. Tony Dungy, keeping things in perspective. We can be proud to be an American, but it's also keeping things in perspective, recognizing that we have work to do in our country. There's nothing wrong with being proud uh, of being an American, and that's good Like that we honored uh, Ken Daly today. What, what a great hero he is right in our midst, and we need to do that. Uh, for, my dad served in the World War II. My uncle was a POW in World War II. Uh, so we, 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 we know how we need to honor our veterans, not just from World War II, but Korean and Vietnam and wherever, all the way. We need to, our church should know the, the cost of, of, of freedom. We, we as a people should. It was one of our own, Joe Johnson, who was, was killed in Afghanistan on June 10th, 2010, nine years ago. And so every time I, I drive by, you know, on US 23, it says the Sergeant Joe Johnson uh, Highway. Every time I, I drive by there, I, I, I try to remember Joe and remember his, his parents and pray for them. Because we're, we, as a church, we, we should know that better maybe than, than maybe other places. We know the cost. So we can be proud of, of our country. We can be proud of where we live. We can be proud of, 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 of our accomplishments. But we shouldn't put blinders on. We're going to talk about that as it relates to personal pride in a minute. But as Tony Dungy said, we need to keep things in perspective. It's, it's easy to lose perspective. 
You know, I've been blessed to go on many um, mission trips. Lately, of course, our church has a partnership in Panama, and so I've been, you know, to Panama several times. And, and a lot of times when I'm in Panama, I'll notice in Panama, the churches will have a Panamanian flag, just like we have an American flag in our city. They'll have a Panamanian flag. And, and rightly so. They're proud of their country. They love their country. They, they, they should. It's a beautiful country. There's many beautiful people there. Often, they'll give me, uh, if I speak at a church or, or something, a pastor may give me or give the team a, 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 a token of their appreciation. Sometimes it's a Panamanian hat or, or it's a picture maybe of the, the Panama Canal. They're proud of their country, and rightly so. They should be. That, that, that's where they're from. I've been to uh, Swaziland. Now it's called Iswanti. But when I was there, it was Swaziland in the heart of Africa. Very poor country. It's where the Church of the Nazarenes started in Africa. Now there's 800,000 Nazarenes in Africa, and it all started in a place called Pig's Peak in Swaziland. Well, I've been there. And guess what? They're proud of their country, too. They love their country. They should. They should. It's a beautiful country. I've been to Jordan on a mission trip in the Middle East. They didn't have pictures of their former pastors on the wall in the church in Jordan that we were in. We were in Zarka, Jordan. They had a picture of the king. The king of Jordan was on the wall. They're proud of their country. They gave every one of us that went on that trip, they gave us all a little Jordanian flag. They're proud of their country, and rightly so. I've been to, I, was, when I was in Russia. I was, I, I was in Russia on a mission trip and, and was talking to one of the Russian pastors. He had served in the Russian military. And so I asked him, I said, what did you do when you were in the Russian military? And he said, well, I was protecting the motherland from the Americans. <laughs> he was only half joking. <laughs> he was proud of his country, rightly so. We understand that, that where you're from, you, you love. God has created a beautiful planet. There are beautiful places all over this world. And every single country you could go in, every single one, and guess what? Not only every single country, but every single person you would see in that country is created in the image of God, just like you and just like me. And so, of course, of course, they should be proud of their country. We should be proud of our country. Pride isn't the healthy, what pr the pride that, that, that Solomon is talking about when he says that pride comes before a fall. He's not talking about the healthy appreciation of a country. He's not talking about the healthy experience we feel when our kid, you know, hits a home run in a Little League game. He's not talking about that healthy sense of worth we feel when we've accomplished a task or completed a goal or, 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 or finished up a job. We can take pride in those, those things. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. No, the pride that goeth before a fall, Proverbs 16, 8. The pride that Solomon warned us about is the unhealthy elevation of self. It's the unhealthy elevation of a country. It's the unhealthy elevation of a, of a people group. James tells us this. He said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Paul said, do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of, the, each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was Jesus' mindset? Well, we're told over and over again, Jesus is the humble king. Jesus is the humble servant. Jesus is meek. Jesus gave us the model, the first shall be last. He said, said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
See, pride isn't, isn't thinking simply that I'm the greatest baseball player, if you really are the greatest baseball player. Pride, this unhealthy pride, is saying I'm the greatest baseball player and everybody else stinks. Everybody else is garbage. You know, uh, that, that's, that's, that's what unhealthy pride is. And there's an example of what I'm talking about in the Bible, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in, in the book of Daniel. You thought Daniel was only about, you know, three guys that got thrown into a fiery furnace, or Daniel, who was, you know, the main entree at lunch with some lions. But there's another story in Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, we're told about King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all of Babylon. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar describes his own situation in verse 4 of chapter 4 in Daniel. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Everything's going great for Nebuchadnezzar. He is the strongest ruler in the world. No one dared threaten him. No one dared cross him. What he said, he got. He was, he, with a word he could send, as we've already seen, if you would have read the first few chapters of Daniel, uh, uh, how he could, with a word, send some guys to a fiery furnace. With another word, he could send people to a lion's den. We all know all about that. He didn't mess with Nebuchadnezzar. He was large and in charge. He was the center of everything that was happening in Babylon. He was the mightiest one in the mightiest nation. But old Nebi had a dream. A nightmare, really. Let's pick it up. Verse 5, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. He called the smartest people in the, in the kingdom to come and, and, and interpret this dream that he had. The best and the brightest, but they couldn't do it. Now, now Nebi must have known that it was bad news because he said he was terrified and he was afraid. And so probably those wise guys knew that this is not a good outcome. It isn't the life expectancy of somebody who gave the king bad news was usually not all that long. Think fiery furnace. And so they kept their mouths shut. And then enter into the story, the hero of the book, Daniel. Finally, verse 8, the Bible says, finally, 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 Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. You get the feeling that for old Nebi, Daniel is kind of one, another one of his lackeys. That's the way he's thinking. Daniel's in his hip pocket. You know, he says jump, and Daniel says how high. You call him Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar says, but I, I've named him Belshazzar. When you name something, it's a, it's a form, really, of, of it implies ownership. It's interesting, Daniel's Hebrew name, Daniel, means God is my judge. His Babylonian name, the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him, Belshazzar, means protect the life of the king. We're going to see in this story that Daniel's going to kind of lean into his Hebrew name and not necessarily his Babylonian name. Let me read on, verse 9. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. Daniel really isn't a magician, but let's read on. I know that the spirit of the holy gods, it's really not God's plural that's in Daniel, it's God Almighty that's in Daniel, but, but you'll get it, is, is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. 
It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Okay, so this great and mighty king dreams of a great and mighty tree, a cosmic tree, a colossal tree, a fantastic tree at the center of the earth that, that from which everything else gets their shelter and their help and everything else. Humans and animals both are humbled at the base of this grand and magnificent tree. I'll give you three guesses as to who the tree represents. Let's read on. In the visions, I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree! And trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passes for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth. And and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me, what does it mean? For none of the wise men in the kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And Daniel's thinking, oh, great. <laughs> it's pretty clear who this dream is about. And all these scaredy-cat wise men couldn't tell him who it's all about. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the big tree. And God just said he's chopping you down. A messenger, a holy Paul Bunyan, is going to be coming with a holy chainsaw, and he's going to whack you down to size. Timber. Did you notice the description? Maybe it's only for, you know, Bible nerds like me that find this interesting. But right in the middle of the description of this tree, uh, as he's telling it, it changes from an it to a him. The pronouns change. In verse 14, it says, Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, and let the stump and its roots. And then in verse 15, the very next verse, says, Let him be drenched with the dew of heavens. Let him live with the animals and blah, blah, blah. Let his mind be changed. Let him be given to the mind of the animal till seven times passes for him. This once mightiest of trees falls with a big clash. And we're no longer talking about a tree. We're no longer talking about a, 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 just a tree that has no, no thoughts and no reasoning and no, 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 no comprehension. Now we're talking about a hymn. And this hymn that was the mightiest of the mighty is going to come crashing down. And old Nebi, he's still a little dense. He's still looking around. Hey, man, life is good in Babylon, isn't it? This is wonderful. I can't imagine that there could be any kind of trouble. And give it to me straight, Belshazzar, Daniel. What's the scoop? Remember I told you how, how pride puts blinders on us? Here you go. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. Equally clear, God Almighty is about to cut him down to size. And Nebi totally misses it. The prideful are sometimes the last to realize their own pride. They are so consumed with self, 
so full of themselves, so enamored by their own press clippings that they miss the obvious. Nebi must have, must have seen the look in Daniel's eyes, like, I really don't want to be here. I don't really don't want to tell you what's going to happen. I know why the wise guys didn't tell you, because, you know, this is trouble. And he says, no, give it to me straight, Daniel. Tell me what it's all about. So Daniel takes a deep breath, and in verse 20 says, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, and its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for birds. Your majesty, you're the tree. You have become great and strong. The greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw the Holy One, a messenger coming down from heaven, saying, cut down the tree, cut down you. And destroy it, but leave a stump bound with iron and bronze in the, field, in the grass of the fields while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of the heavens. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree from the Most High that is issued against the Lord, the, the King. You will be driven away from the people. You will live with the wild animals and eat grass like the oxen and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command is to leave the stump of, of the tree with the roots. Remains that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge, when you finally acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty... Please, to be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel says, God's given you a chance, Nebuchadnezzar. Renounce your sins. Start doing what's right. Look to those who are, who are being oppressed. God is the creator, not you. Pride cometh before a fall. Isn't that what Solomon said? You have the opportunity to change, Nebuchadnezzar. Again, we're not talking about healthy self-image here. We're talking about deadly pride. Snobbish, patronizing, rude, condescending, impatient, demanding, cruel, insensitive, egocentric, arrogant. Pride is so easy to see in others, so difficult to see in the mirror. Others are egotistical. We're self-confident. Others are big-headed. We're about right. Others are vain. We simply care about our appearance. Others are demanding. We value excellence. Others are aloof. Well, we're sort of introverted. Others are braggadocious. We're kind of extroverted. Others are smug. We're secure. Pride is blinding. We see it in others, not in ourselves. Does anyone remember the great theologian of the 70s, Carly Simon? She wrote a song. You may remember it. Some thought her song was about Mick Jagger. Others thought her song was about uh, uh, James Taylor. It was rumored that, that um, um, Warren Beatty sent her a thank you note for the song that he said she wrote about him. And the song was, as you may recall, You're So Vain. You probably think this song is about you. Don't you, don't you, don't you? You're so vain. The problem with prideful people is they see it in others, not in themselves. And before you say, boy, I wish, I wish so-and-so wasn't up north uh, this weekend, but they could be listening to this sermon. <laughs> and maybe you need to listen. It happened to old Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel gave it to, to, to him the news, gave it to him straight. Old Nebi either didn't want to see it, didn't want to hear it, didn't, didn't, didn't think it applied to him. And can I just interject here? 
pray that there's a Daniel in your life. That if there is some glaring sin, not just this week when we're talking about pride, but next week when it's, when it's envy or lust or, or gluttony or any of the others, pray, pray that there's someone in your life that will have the courage that it took Daniel to stand up to the greatest king in the world and say, the tree is you. Pray that you have a friend that loves you so much that says, you've got this issue, and I, I love you, and I don't want to see you fall because of this. You've got to take care of it. And pray that you won't be so defensive that you don't hear it. Nebuchadnezzar didn't hear it. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence? By my power and the glory of my majesty. Wow! It's no mistake that this took place on the roof of the palace as he was looking down on his people. See, the problem with Nebuchadnezzar isn't that he was proud. It's that he, he thought that he was strong. It wasn't that he was strong and wise and, 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 and wealthy. It's that he was, he was consumed with being stronger, wiser, wealthier, mightier than everyone else. That's what happens with pride. Everything is a competition. The prideful have to win. There's no other option. Pride, pride has to have the first word. Let me define reality. Pride has to have the final word. Let me take credit for that reality. Pride comes in all forms, in all shapes and sizes. It's the lady that has to be noticed when she walks in the room. It's the guy that has to have the fastest car, the biggest house, you name it. It's the pastor that has to be known for his great preaching skills. It's the businessman who has the, the fattest portfolio. And just so you know, in case it's missed you, God hates it. Hates is a strong word. We don't like to, to, to put God and hate in the same sentence, but God hates it. God hates pride. Solomon said, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride is deadly. And Nebi is about to find out just how much God hates the proud. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what, you decreed, what, what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and live like the wild animals and you will eat grass like the oxen. Seven times, seven years will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, ate grass like the oxen. His body was drenched with the dew of the heavens until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Why is God so hard on the pride, on the proud and the prideful? Simple. We make great created beings. We make great disciples. We make great followers of Jesus. We make lousy gods. We were created to be full, not full of ourselves, full of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about that the last few, few weeks. We were created not to be selfish and self-centered. We were created not to be so full of ourselves. We were created not to think that the world revolves around us, but rather to glory in the one who created it all. And when we elevate ourselves, when we elevate ourselves to the point where we, we belittle those around us or those from other places, we fail to recognize everyone breathes like we breathe. Everyone, well, they don't all put on pants, but they all put on the pants the way we put on pants. Everyone has been created in the image of God just like we have been. 
And it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter uh, 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 what your bank account says, what color of your skin is, what your education level is. The, the, the truth of the matter is we all need a Savior, every single one of us. We're all in the same boat. Not that some are in a yacht and some are in a dinghy. No, we're all in the same boat. We all need Jesus. So what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? God bring him back to earth. And what will happen to all those who are prideful? God will cut you down to size. Verse 34, at the end of that time, after seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, finally, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My, my advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, not me. Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And maybe the thing that Nebuchadnezzar learned most was this last commentary. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Listen, God may not send a holy Paul Bunyan to you to cut you down to size. What he did send was Jesus. Jesus, who was born in a manger, humble Jesus, to show us the way to save us from our sins and show us the way to wholeness and wellness. Jesus is our model. Paul said it. Our attitude should be the same as Jesus. And so as we as individuals or we as a country, when we get our eyes on ourselves instead of the Holy One, then don't be surprised if God cuts us down to size. This series, you know, hopefully if I'm preaching it right, will cause us to look in the mirror, not just this week, but in the weeks ahead. And, and for us to ask these questions about these deadly sins, for us this week, do I have unhealthy pride? Do I care too much about what others perceive uh, about me? Am I vain? Do I put on masks to hide the, my true self and think that I'm invisible? Invincible, rather. Am I overly prideful of the blessings that I've been given, thinking that I have, have done it all on my own and, and neglecting that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift? Do I care more about Instagram likes or Facebook likes or how many times something has been shared rather than what Jesus likes? Do I take too much credit for what God has done? Do I look at myself and, and lift myself up and, and, and ignore my own shortcomings? Am I preaching? Am I singing? Am I playing an instrument for my glory or for God's glory? Do I sit in a worship service and, and, and when an altar call is given, do I think, oh my goodness, I can't go down there because what will people think? Or when God talks to me about uh, caring for my neighbor or my friend, think, oh my goodness, I could, what, would, what would other people at, in my workplace think or my school think? Do I care more what others think than what God thinks? Am I prideful? As we celebrate America even today, you know, again, we can love our country for sure. We, we should be proud Americans. We have a beautiful country with many, many beautiful, wonderful things. But understand, the hope for our world is not America. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we forget that, we are doomed. That's why, that's why again, I had to preach this sermon this day because the dominant symbol for us needs to be the cross. It must be the cross. We pray around here all the time that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth in Flint. We could expand it today in America 
as it is in heaven. We're not there yet. You know, God's will isn't being done here in every corner of our country yet. And until it is, until the, the sick are being made well, and until the lonely are come, have someone to come alongside of them, until racism is done away with and human trafficking is done away with it, and some of the, the, the sexism and all these other things are done away with, until there's, there's safety and security, until there's love for one another and for our brothers and sisters, whether they look like us or not, until some of those issues on the southern border are, are controlled, until God's kingdom comes, we've got to work for it. Why? Because the hope of the world is the cross of Jesus Christ. And we, in the midst of all that, we, the people of God, need to often in services like this, the verse that's quoted is from 2 Chronicles, and it's true. We, the people of God, if we want God to work in our country, and we want to get our eyes off ourselves and onto the Holy One, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, who are called by my name, will what? Not be prideful will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, recognizing who's in the mirror and saying, I need God, turn from their wicked ways, then, then, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We want God to heal our land. We've got to turn to him. Our choir is going to sing all about that.